Good evening. My name is Emily Duffy, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening for a very important discussion on doctor-prescribed suicide. Across the country, states are considering policies to legalize this practice. Even here in the District of Columbia, there's a piece of legislation in committee to legalize doctor-prescribed suicide. Tonight, we'll hear from several panelists who will bring their various perspectives to the issue. Krista, Executive Director of Life Issues at the Archdiocese of Washington, will speak about the specific legislation being proposed in the District of Columbia. Sister Constance from the Little Sisters of the Poor will share her experience caring for the sick and dying. Christopher White, Associate Director of Catholic Voices, will give us some advice on how to speak publicly about the issue. We will then have time for questions, and then at the end of the evening, Sarah Yaklik from the Archdiocese of Washington will give us a few takeaway action items of how we can become involved in this issue. Good evening. Um, so just to begin, uh, the bill in the District of Columbia was introduced last year. It's a two-year cycle, so it doesn't technically expire till the end of this year in December. Uh, the hearing was July 10th, and the title of the bill in the District of Columbia is the Death with Dignity Act of 2015. Um, that's distinct, the one in Maryland that was just withdrawn from the Senate, so it's a positive movement was called the End of Life Options Act, which was new this year. Last year it was Death with Dignity. And I think it's very telling, and the reason why I point this out is because the one that passed in California is called the End of Life Options Act, and I think it reveals some of the strategy of compassion choices in focusing very much on the part of autonomy and the fact that this is just one option among many in your health care decisions. Um, versus the death with dignity title that had previously been given, which I think, again, is a positive uh, reflection on all the efforts that have been made across the United States in battling these bills, that we have somehow reclaimed the word dignity for ourselves. So, um, so it's still death with dignity in D.C., but it'll take a little while for this bill to expire for them to change the name if they so choose to do that. Uh, in the district, as in many of the other states um, in which have proposed similar bills, uh, this is a bill that would legalize physician-assisted suicide, doctor-prescribed, however you want to term it, but it's assisted suicide, um, where the doctor is able to prescribe a lethal prescription for an adult who is diagnosed with a terminal condition uh, and a prognosis of six months or less. Um, and the qualifications, how someone um, is considered to be an uh, appropriate candidate, that terminal condition definition, I think, is telling. Um, a terminal disease means an incurable and irreversible disease that has been medically confirmed and will, within reasonable medical judgment, result in death within six months. An incurable and irreversible disease. There are many diseases that fall under that definition. Uh, there's no separation between diseases that have an appropriate medical protocol that would prevent that six-month uh, termination, such as diabetes or um, kidney dialysis and such. If you're not given those treatments of insulin and dialysis, that person could very well die within six months and would qualify under the definition in the District of Columbia. Um, and it's medical judgment, reasonable medical judgment. That's not the tightest 
estimation of whether or not this is an accurate diagnosis. Um, the other element to the bill that is important is the person is deemed capable by the physician of making this decision. Um, there's no psychiatric evaluation. This mental competency is just whether or not this person is freely choosing of their own volition uh, to access this lethal prescription. So there's no assessment, required assessment, that this person is not uh, depressed, doesn't have other mental health conditions that would complicate their competency, um, et cetera. So besides the fact that this is changing dramatically healthcare and uh, giving a healing profession now the capacity to kill um, and all the other moral uh, offenses that this implicates. There are many, many, many flaws with the bill. There's many problems. Um, the fact that there are no witnesses when the person actually takes the lethal dose, so you don't know whether or not um, they're actually taking it freely, and multiple other problems um, that make this a recipe for elder abuse and coercion and disaster. So I will stop there um, and let the other panelists go um, and then open for questions after. Okay, well, uh, thank you all for coming tonight. Um, so I'm a little sister of the poor and we are an international congregation of women whose only mission in the church is to care for the elderly poor. And here in the United States, we have 27 homes where we welcome low-income seniors of all religions and no religions. We are in 30 other countries besides the United States. And so I was asked to speak about our personal experience of caring for the dying. And I'd like to begin this with a reflection from Pope John Paul II, because it's one of my favorite um, lines from him. And I'd like it to set a context um, in which dying takes place in the homes of the Little Sisters of the Poor. This goes back all the way back to 1980 when he spoke to a group of senior citizens in Munich, Germany. So he said, without familiarity with God, there is in the last end no consolation in death. This is exactly what God intends with death, that at least in this one sublime hour of our life, we allow ourselves to fall into his love without any other security than just this love of his. How could we show him our faith, our love, in a more lucid manner? And so that quote is really what we try to create as Little Sisters, to create that kind of environment and that kind of experience for our elderly residents as they're dying. Um, our society's conversation about assisted suicide, I think, tends to focus in on young, attractive, people in tragic situations, like last spring with Brittany Maynard. Um, you know, she was the center of it. But this is not my experience at all, because since our apostolate is specifically with the elderly, I will be talking specifically about the experience of dying with the elderly. And actually, last year, almost on this very date, it was right around now in March, I was asked to be on a very similar panel at the Heritage Foundation. And I was afraid that my experience in working with the elderly was too limited or too far removed from what I thought was like the more mainstream, which was like the Brittany Maynards. But Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation was on that panel and presented a paper he had just written 
in which he really makes the point, and he underlines it several times in his paper, that um, although younger people are sometimes put out there as you know the example or you know the story, really it's the poor and the elderly who are most vulnerable if a su assisted suicide would become legal. And certainly in our society that's rapidly aging, I think the majority of people who might ultimately choose this or feel pressured to choose it would be the elderly. And so I hope that our experience as Little Sisters, you will find relevant because I think most of the cases will really be kind of in our ballpark and not so much the beautiful young Brittany Maynards of the world. So, um, you know, I start with that. Um, I, I really kind of grouped my ideas under four points. And they are that um, our care of the dying is focused on life rather than death, that we provide the best medical and comfort care possible, that dying is an important and extremely meaningful family experience, and that the dying process is also intensely spiritual. And I think I would go so far as to make the claim that in our homes, the dying experience almost becomes more strongly a spiritual experience than a medical one. And I'll explain that a little bit more. So first, that the care of the dying is focused on life. Um, you know, we have homes for the elderly. Death is a fairly frequent occurrence in our homes. Just in the past couple of weeks, we've had, how many, Sirjan? Three residents pass away just since February. So it's a fairly common occurrence. And it's something that, to some extent, we get accustomed to. And our elderly residents, you know, are there with us. So they also become accustomed to you on a certain level. And yet we're not focused on death every day. You know, we don't live just waiting for the next person to die. We try to provide the elderly with as full and meaningful a life as possible. And I say that because I think that that would apply to anybody in um, a, a situation of chronic or terminal illness that it's not about just sitting, waiting to die. It's a matter of living as fully as possible, um, you know, to the full extent that one is able in one's condition that makes life, helps to make life worth living. And I think if we look at the U.S. Bishop's document that was written several years ago on assisted suicide, what is the title of that document? It's not dying. Dying's not even in the title. The title of the document is to live each day with dignity. And so I think that encapsulates the Catholic position on, you know, end of life care. And that is exactly what we as little sisters uh, try to do. I have a little quote here um, as part of our Supreme Court case, which probably you're aware of. Um, there was an amicus brief prepared with testimonials from residents and family members of residents in our homes. And so this is a quote from a resident who happens to live with us in, here in Washington, DC. He said, I feel I'm part of the family and that's a great feeling to have. That's the beauty of the little sisters. They want to make the old people happy and they are dedicated to doing that. They will keep you alive 10 years longer than any place else because they love you. This is a gentleman who's been disabled his whole life and we are the third nursing home that he's lived in. So he kind of knows what he's talking about. And then um, Dr. Oliver Sachs, the well-known neurologist who passed away last year, he was a very good friend of ours. And he actually treated residents in our New York City homes for about 40 years. And 
I was not aware of this, but somebody else brought it out and incorporated it into this amicus brief in his memoir, which he wrote, published in 2015. This is what he said about us. Their homes are about life, living the fullest, most meaningful life possible, given the residents' limitations and needs. Some of the residents have had strokes, some have dementia or Parkinsonism. Some have medical conditions, cancer, emphysema, heart disease, etc. Some are blind, some are deaf, and others, though in robust health, have become lonely and isolated and long for the human warmth and contact of a community. But you know, he recognized over the years that our homes are about life. And so I think that's a very central part of our experience and you know, a central ideal to hold on to if we're trying to to promote the culture of life in the face of assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, so the second point I wanted to make is that as Little Sisters, we provide the best medical and comfort care possible. You might be surprised, but I would say that in, in general, nine out of 10 residents who reside with us, we encourage all of the residents to fill out an advanced directive as soon as they come to live with us so that their wishes are known at all times when they're with us and and like our nursing staff would always be aware of what the residents wishes are so that if um you know an acute situation happens they know what to do and i would say that probably 9 out of 10 residents choose to be dnr do not resuscitate and many of them express explicitly that they don't want extraordinary means uh to prolong their lives and that as they age and become more frail, they also often express the wish not to be rehospitalized because hospitalization is brutal to the frail elderly. It's very difficult. They might go in with one acute problem and come home with many problems they didn't go in with in terms of hospital-acquired infections, decubitus, malnutrition. Um, it's just the hospital, I know it sounds very bizarre, but the hospital can be a really tough place for the elderly. And so, you know, these attitudes do not reflect a pro-death attitude. I think they reflect the elderly who are have faith. Um, they reflect their attitude that death is part of life and that death is inevitable and that they are preparing for it. And so that, you know, um, we are very strong on comfort care. And um, for us, comfort care does not mean in any way, shape, or form neglect or stopping to feed or hydrate residents unless it's very obvious that their bodies are refusing to you know digest or absorb um, nutrition and hydration even if it has to be given you know by assisted means but we do everything we can to keep the residents comfortable and to medicate them appropriately with pain medication you know even some someone last year we had a resident with very advanced um, Alzheimer's who was on comfort care, but when that really bad flu respiratory infection came last year after Christmas, her family, we together, we discerned that we should at least give it a shot with um, antibiotics with her. She ended up not pulling through, but in many places, someone on comfort care, it wouldn't even be a question of giving them an antibiotic in that situation, but we did. You know, We felt like if she could just pull through this illness, you know, it was worth a try. Now, it didn't work, but that's just to give you, you know, an idea of how we approach issues like that. So nobody is like given up on um, ever. And, you know, we really um, do everything we can to create the best physical environment for them. 
We usually when the residents are dying, there are special sheets that come out to make their, you know, bed as pretty as possible. Granted, it's probably mostly for the family's benefit, but, um, you know, we try to make sure that they're, um, they're clothed in attractive nightgowns, that their hair is still combed and cared for, that they get, you know, all the best um, care, which also makes a, the best experience for the family and, you know, the kind of gentlest experience for the family, as well as for the dying person, him or herself. Um, the third, um, that kind of leads me into the third point, which is that dying is an extremely meaningful family experience. And, you know, in our homes, we have a strong family spirit between the little sisters and the residents, but also including our staff and our other collaborators. We um, have two of our associate, lay associate members here in the audience tonight, and I'm sure they could attest to this, that everyone's part of the family. And so when a resident is dying, um, you know, the whole family comes around. So that means the little sisters are very attentive, the nursing staff, but there's also place in the room for their favorite housekeeper, the maintenance men, administrative staff, volunteers, our lay associates. Everybody gathers around as well as their own family. And in cases where they don't have family, all the more so that we gather around them to try to create almost as constant a presence as possible. And so it really is a very intense family moment. And a couple of years ago, um, I'm the editor of our little magazine. A couple of years ago, I did an issue after the Bishop's document came out. And I just like to read this little account that was written by a little sister and it kind of attests to the involvement of family in our work. So she says, I have been by the bedside of many a dying resident and have seen so many beautiful moments of love, reconciliation, and reminiscing between loved ones who have shared their lives with our aged residents, preparing to journey onward toward heaven. They are some of the most profound, intimate, and beautiful moments I have ever lived and would not trade them for anything. Nor would I wish that any family be deprived of such meaningful encounters because of any new legislation which would take us away from our true dignity and calling to live as human persons made in the image and likeness of God, the blessed Trinity, the ultimate example of giving and receiving in love. Accompanying a dying person with compassion and love should be regarded as a high point in our vocation as human persons, a privilege because it is one of the prime times that we can demonstrate our call to be gift to others in need. So that's from a little sister, you know, reflective of our experience. And very recently, one of the residents, um, our residents who passed away in February, she was a woman from South America. And she really didn't have any family, but she had some friends who were faithful to her who came to visit her on a regular basis. But the day that she died, one of our um, housekeeping staff, we actually have an outside company. So technically, our housekeepers are not our own employees, but they're employed by this company. And yet, everyone's part of the family. So most of our housekeepers are um, met younger men and women from Central America. So there was this one young man who had grown quite close to this woman. And so he was there when she died. And, um, you know, he wanted to know that she was cremated and there was really kind of a delay before her funeral or her memorial mass. But he really wanted to know when it was going to be. And he came on his day off to come to it. 
And, you know, you could say, oh, gosh, she's only a housekeeper. But, you know, he was always very attentive and a friend to her. He could speak Spanish to her. You know, so that just gives you an example of how everyone who works as a part of our team becomes part of the family and helps surround the residents. So the fourth point, and maybe the most important, is that the dying process and the dying experience is intensely spiritual. I would say spiritual more than medical even. So, you know, as little sisters, we try to be attentive to make sure that the residents are not deprived of the sacraments, that they're still able to receive. We have daily mass, but even if they can't come to mass, we bring communion to their rooms and we try to make sure that they receive the anointing of the sick on a regular basis. In fact, today we had an anointing mass, um, you know, kind of for the Lenten season, but we try to do it on probably a quarterly basis, I would say. And then, you know, when someone is actually in danger of dying, they would be anointed again. So the first thing, obviously, is to be able to provide the sacraments. Um, also, the sisters, it's, it's been a part of our tradition ever since the beginning of our congregation that we little sisters ourselves keep a 24-hour vigil with the residents who have entered the dying process so that, to the best of our ability, no one dies alone. Now, I can't say that no one ever dies alone because we do once in a while find somebody who died in their sleep or somebody just, you know, collapses and it's so quick. But to the best of our ability, a little sister is always there with them. So that means that we take turns during the night to spend, we usually do three-hour shifts so that the residents always have a prayerful presence with them. And, you know, that's a really important thing for families as well. And I would say increasingly over the years, we've just seen that more and more family members are unchurched, you know, away from the practice of the Catholic faith or any other faith. You know, we do take uh, residents of all different faiths. And it can be a real moment of helping them to come back to, um, to renewing their own relationship with God. And it's also a moment when our staff are very welcome to contribute, you know, whether they're Catholic or not. You know, and a lot of our nursing staff and nursing assistants are African. And there's been a, a few beautiful moments in the last couple of years when we have people standing around the bedside of a resident singing in their own languages. And, you know, it's just a very intense spiritual moment. I would really say that when a resident is dying, their room becomes like the center of the home because everyone knows that something very special is going on there. And everybody passes by, pauses says a prayer with the resident, you know, just some words of consolation to them. And I think in general, everyone's just aware that, you know, something very awesome is happening. Um, so that's a very dear part of our, um, of our tradition that we little sisters uh, hold on to. And, you know, I can really say that, um, you know, this ideal of death being the moment of a peaceful handing over of one's life to God, as John Paul II said, you know, we see in most cases is the reality. And in most cases, the death of our residents is peaceful. It's most often like, a we often say, oh, they were like a candle that just kind of went out. And sometimes it's even imperceptible to know the exact moment of the last breath. You know, we sometimes see things on TV or in movies or whatever, like these dramatic scenes, but that's not our experience of death with the elderly. For the most part, we are able to control their pain, I would say, in almost every case, so that death is just like kind of a slow petering out or a slow fading out. Um, and so I'll just close with um, 
a quote from another resident, and this also is from our amicus brief. This is a resident who just recently moved into our apartments, so he's actually still quite active. But he said, recently a woman died, and the sisters were there at the hospital all night praying beside her bed. I pray for that, that type of help on my deathbed, that they would be there encouraging me not to fear to look into the presence of God. And so, you know, we really try to make that experience a reality for all of our residents. So I'll stop there and pass it on to you. And I do have a few more little stories or anecdotes I could share in the question period or whatever if we have time. But uh, So my name is Chris White, and I'm with Catholic Voices USA. And a large part of what Catholic Voices does is uh, we train and equip people to talk about some of these neuralgic and sensitive issues that are sometimes uncomfortable for people to talk about, uh, but to do so in a way that's winsome and inviting and invites dialogue rather than debate. Uh, and so we do this uh, both uh, uh, in terms of equipping people to speak to the media, but also for, uh, for just everyday Catholics to talk about these issues with their friends and their families and their neighbors. Uh, and what we have is kind of our, our guiding sort of backbone is what we call the 10 principles of civil communications. And so I'm going to walk you through the 10 principles of civil communications and make it specific to this issue. So uh, we're talking about doctor-prescribed suicide. I'm, you may hear me use the term doctor-assisted suicide, but I use them here interchangeably. Uh, we just found that when we use the term doctor-prescribed suicide, it's a nice sort of way to get people to realize right away what's going on here in this debate. Uh, but I'm, I may use the terms interchangeably, but I mean the same thing here. Okay, so the first principle that we have is don't get mad, reframe. So anytime a contentious issue arises, there's going to be some hostility. People are going to you know, quickly uh, want to disagree. Uh, but our approach is to find the positive intention uh, behind the disagreement at place and to challenge, use that intention to then challenge someone's prejudice or their preconceptions. And really oftentimes in these debates, there's a Christian value that is shared. Uh, so, you know, what would that value be in this uh, debate over uh, physician-assisted suicide? Well, the current debate over physician-assisted suicide goes something like this. All individuals have a certain right, a certain autonomy, and they really should be able to choose how they die. Uh, they should be able to set the terms, uh, especially those who are suffering, those that are in great pain. Uh, they need to be able to have some control up through the very end of their life. And so... Where when sort of debating this issue, uh, we take a second to say, hey, what's, what's the common frame that if this person in Camp A and this person in Camp B disagree over a fundamental issue, what is shared there? Well, what, what's shared here is there's obviously some concern about suffering and pain. That is what's motivating this conversation in the first place. For those that are in favor of assisted suicide, it's this, this need to control pain. And for those of us who oppose this, it's uh, this recognition that pain serves some greater good, especially those of us who are Catholic, uh, but also that there's meaning to be found in pain and suffering, and that we must do a better job of attending to that need, especially for the sick and the dying. So then we use that to reframe the question. So what is the reframe? So the church is never in favor of killing people off. We're in favor of looking after those who are in these dire circumstances in the last stages of life. Uh, we're allowing... An, Allowing people to kill themselves uh, is a failure of society. Uh, death should never be seen as a form of therapy. Uh, so let's figure out ways that we can better support and care for those uh, in this time period of their life. 
So we take this cared value of suffering, but we say this is how we deal with suffering. This is how we want to address it. There's a better way, and let's evidence that for you. So our second sort of principle, and uh, it goes in tandem with the first, is to shed light, not heat. Again, we don't want this to become a divisive conversation for friends and family members. We say, you know, at Catholic Voices, our approach is, you know, we're, we're not the Marine Corps. We're the Peace Corps. We go in to invite dialogue, to invite conversation. Uh, so on this issue, I'm going to give you an example of a quote. And this is for, for someone you know, that, that opposes assisted suicide, uh, but perhaps maybe not the best way to going about and addressing it. So you may hear someone say, those who want us to legalize their right to kill themselves are turning all of us towards selfishness. Grandiose, infantile delusions of entitlement. So themes of selfishness, entitlement, um, uh, particularly selfishness. We never want to sort of come out sort of charging toward those that are supporting this. We really want to understand what's motivating them. And we're picking up on, you know, those who are dying are obviously under this great sort of pressure. Uh, they're uh, obviously looking for options, grasping uh, for what's available to them. Uh, but we want to meet them where they're at. And so, a perhaps better way to address this is, uh, you know, to, to maybe introduce something into the conversation that turn, you know, switches on a light bulb in someone's mind. It kind of turns the perception a bit. And so this is a quote from Dr. Ira Bayek. Uh, he's a leading palliative care physician. Uh, he, you know, for the record, he's, he's Jewish. He's progressive. He doesn't check any of the typical Catholic boxes. But this is what he has to say about assisted suicide um, or response to it. Having worked as a physician in hospice and palliative care teams since 1978, I know that no one needs to die in physical agony. With, compre with comprehensive whole person care, most people live in relative comfort and despite the sadness of leaving those they love, even a sense of well-being in their final months, weeks, and days of their life. So this very much attests to what Sister Constance was saying. You know, we are at a state now where we can really control pain uh, through palliative care, through various uh, medical techniques. Uh, and it's really about the environment that's created for people. That's what matters the most. So a third principle is think in threes. So you may be thinking, uh, what does that mean? And this is a term, or this is a sort of a principle that uh, really comes out of uh, media training. But it's also helpful uh, just in thinking about how to have this conversation with your family members, your neighbors. Uh, particularly if they may be a bit aggressive uh, and you, you may expect some, some hard questioning. So if you're entering into a conversation where you know you're going to have this conversation, it's often nice to kind of have three sort of points that you want to, to sort of have in your back pocket that you can kind of use and pivot between to kind of keep you in focus. Uh, so I'm going to sort of walk you through what that may look like. Uh, so. So, you know, a general question, what happens when a society embraces assisted suicide? That's kind of just sort of an out-of-the-gate question that you may uh, get asked. And you want to have a ready answer. So, assisted suicide gives a green light to hopelessness and despair and sanctions suicide as the response to hardship. So just kind of a, you know, one-sentence, two-sentence, pithy response uh, that, you know, you can deliver to people right away when they want to ask you, what's wrong with assisted suicide? Now, you may then get a more pointed question, so something that is a bit more direct, such as, wouldn't making this legal just ensure that people who are already dying and are in, are in pain, or who are in pain and suffering, uh, 
more than necessary. So there's this idea that we have to legalize this because there's a certain population that just they need our support right away, and the only way to help them out uh, is to you know you know enact mercy killings. So sort of a, a quick sort of response to that is that. At the end of the day, to accept death as therapy is a failure of love and of society. You know, regardless of the circumstances, we can and must do better. Uh, and assisted suicide there we go, uh, leaves the vulnerable more vulnerable, and especially the disabled whose lives may be judged less valuable. And we haven't gotten to the specifics of the policy here in DC or in other states. But one of the wonderful things about the groups that have come out against assisted suicide has really been the, disabil uh, the dis uh, disability rights community, who uh, simply see this as a threat to their entire existence. Uh, and they've been wonderful going about the country, speaking at state houses, speaking with legislators, because they very much feel that they're threatened by this legislation. Uh, and so anytime we can remind people that just what's at stake, uh, we must do so. Uh, so that's sort of the, the three points that it's kind of nice to, and helpful to triangulate uh, between. So, point number four. Uh, and this really uh, is made true by what Sister Constance was uh, saying in the last talk. People won't remember what you said as much as how much you made them feel. Uh, so uh, here we've got Pope Francis. And uh, in his uh, apostolic exhortation, The Joy of the Gospel, he has this wonderful quote when he talks about Catholics, that we're to be joyful messengers of challenging proposals. So, I mean, talking about death and suffering is never easy. It's not a conversation place where any of us want to dwell. Uh, but as Sister Constance and the Little Sisters of the Poor evidence so well, that there's a way that you can go about this that completely changes people's perceptions. To do so in a way that's joyful and winsome like they do is just very beautiful. Uh, and I'll tell a story now which gets to the heart of sort of the Catholic Voices project. Uh, so you can see here, two Brits and an American walk into a bar. Uh, Catholic Voices was started over in, 2000, uh, in 2010 in the United Kingdom. Uh, and it was uh, right around the time when uh, Pope Benedict was coming for his uh, visit there to beatify uh, Cardinal Newman. And uh, a number of Catholics in England that worked in the media really wanted to make this visit a success for the Pope and also really use it as a time to change public perception of the church in the UK. Uh, and so there was sort of a roster of Catholics that were frequently appearing in the press, talk, just lay people that were there to explain what the Pope was saying, what he meant when he was doing this, uh, and just really attest to the joy of the faith. Uh, and so one day, uh, John Allen Jr., who is uh, a senior Vatican analyst, he's been around covering church affairs for a few decades now, uh, he was covering the, the visit for the BBC, uh, and after the final, uh, uh, the final mass, was just in a pub with some of the crew from the BBC. Uh, and up on the screen uh, are you know, a number of uh, televisions with football games, soccer games, uh, and then a few, of the, uh, a few of the televisions had network television of the Pope's visit. Uh, and there's these two football fans there. They're, you know, they were there to watch the game, but they kind of pan over to this young Catholic woman who's there just talking about her faith. She's full of the joy of the gospel. She's funny. She's clearly excited to be a Catholic and proud of it. And one of them looks to the other and he says, you know, these Catholics aren't that crazy after all. Uh, and so we kind of, you know, people will remember how you made them feel. They may not have been able to say afterwards what she was actually talking about, but it had really altered their perception of what it means to be Catholic and what the church represents. And so whether we're, whether we're talking about marriage and family life or we're talking about assisted suicide, we want to, to leave people feeling as if we actually care and love 
the church and what the church teaches. Uh, point number five, show, don't tell. Uh, stories are compelling. I mean, you heard, you know, sister's wonderful accounts that she was giving. I'm sure she'll share more in a moment. You know, people need to know that there are better examples of dying. There are stories of people, you know, feeling as if they're surrounded uh, by a community at the end. Um, so all of us, you know, or many of us have had experiences caring for the dying, being with those that we love. Uh, and so if, if there's an opportunity to speak from your own experience, you know, use that, run with it. Uh, it's, it's important to, to evidence personal stories as well as what's out there, real life stories. So Brittany Maynard, you know, the one that Sister referenced earlier. Another one I'll point to here is the example of Barbara Wagner. Uh, Barbara Wagner, I guess this is 2008, uh, she was a 64-year-old woman, a cancer patient in Oregon, uh, who needed a $4,000 a month drug uh, to save her life. Uh, you know, she, she, she was um, obviously sick with cancer, but this drug could have, you know, extended her life uh, indefinitely. Uh, she received a letter back saying, uh, we can't cover that drug, but we will cover the $50 drug uh, that will, you know, effectively end your life. Uh, so this isn't a slippery slope argument that assisted suicide can lead to these sorts of things. Uh, we know that assisted suicide leads to this, uh, to sort of death being seen as a therapy or a solution. Where are we at? Okay, number six. Uh, anytime uh, you're talking about this issue, uh, or any other issue for that matter that's contentious or neuralgic, it's important to always say yes. The church, when we say no to certain things, such as assisted suicide, uh, we're doing so so that we can offer and respond to a greater yes. So when it comes to assisted suicide, we're saying yes to strong protections for the vulnerable and no to the things that threaten the vulnerable, like the disabled rights group that I mentioned earlier. We're saying yes to greater palliative and hospice care and options like the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, and, and saying no to death as therapy. We're saying no to suicide and yes to solidarity, that we can be there and surround you in your time of need. Number seven, compassion counts. I, can, I keep going back to Sister Constant, but there's no better example than, than compassion, than the, the little sisters of the poor. When you talk about this issue, you immediately have to empathize uh, and share in the concerns of those who are dying, those who have relatives that are dying. You have to recognize that they're vulnerable, they're, they're seeking support. Uh, and they, you know, those that are dying or those that are talking about this issue, we have to prove to them that we're witnesses of mercy and companionship in a better way. Finally, numbers aren't everything. Again, this is, comes from sort of media training, but it applies here too. You know, oftentimes in these debates, we can kind of get lost in the facts and figures. You know, X number of states have this legalized. You know, X percent of the population utilized it. So that, that's all well and good, and facts are important. Uh, but you also want to give people something that they can remember. So they may not remember how many people died of assisted suicide in Oregon last year. But if you give them an image that comes to mind, uh, that, that's something that sticks with people. So for example here, you see a picture of FedEx Field. Why is the football field up here? Well, so I'll give you a number. So last year, 5,000 people utilized uh, the Netherlands assisted suicide law. So 5,000 people. If you compare that in terms of population here in the U.S., that'd be something like 93,000 people utilizing that. So, you know, a better way to phrase this is more people utilize physician-assisted suicide laws than that can fill up FedEx field 
uh, for a game or something like that. Some sort of image that people will remember that it sticks with them uh, and in a sense haunts them. They can realize the gravity of the situation. Uh, final two points here, uh, it's about witnessing. Anytime as Catholics that we address this issue, you know, we're not there to simply uh, win a debate and to score debate points, although we do want to change people's mind on this issues, uh, on this issue. We want to really invite them into to seek a deeper understanding of the faith and what compels us to have this compassion and this joy and this respect for life that we want everyone to embrace. Uh, and finally, it's not about you. Whether you're debating this issue uh, with your next door neighbor or if you're debating this uh, you know, on camera, you know, this is about an issue uh, that is much greater. It's about Christ and his church and his command uh, to go out and protect and serve all those in need, especially the dying. Uh, and so, again, these are our 10 principles. Uh, we use them to talk about a number of issues, uh, but I hope this provided kind of a helpful overview of how you can have useful, productive, uh, and compassionate conversations on this issue. So, thank you. Thanks again to all three of you, um, and we have some time for questions. Uh, thank you to all you three for the introduction. Um, I think it, I don't know if this is on or not, but um, I think it might be helpful to understand more the patient population of which we're talking about, especially in relation to this argument, um, and moreover in context with what his or her medical doctor has diagnosed for the patient as well. Um, I know we talk about like time, like six months, we talk about pain, we talk about function. Um, but uh, so, I mean, for example, there's instances where um, patients, uh, something happens to a patient, they come in the hospital, he or she, for example, might have an ischemic stroke that might be really bad, and they have the, the doctor prescribed with, you know, 24, 48 hours to live, and the doctor puts them on a morphine drip to, because, and that state, you know, their body is already at the point where it's starting to shut down, right? So the morphine, in this example, not only just, it doesn't just suppress pain, but it suppresses the respiratory system. Okay, so I'm just, I'm just trying to bring up an example of when we would see that as a compassionate use for a drug. Now, of course, we, we can extend that, so we talk about a time like six months, so there's obviously differences in diagnosis where people have, you know, for example, this bill mentions disease, well, we don't know exactly what disease. Um, for example, I could be diagnosed with, you know, GBM, glioblastoma, where, you know, I can function actually pretty well, but then it's about five or six months, I can go down pretty quickly, and there's others where you can, might have a slight paper roll-off, for example. So. I think it would be helpful to me to understand a little bit more about what types of people we're talking about, especially where this argument revolves around, and maybe kind of the differences in both arguments where people see each other. And and, and the other thing is, uh, you know, for the diagnosis, is it just, we're just talking about one doctor, and is their family involved, and how long is this decision process? So, um... First of all, they, there do have to be two physicians that confirm that uh, the patient has a terminal diagnosis, six months or less prognosis, and um, that, again, they're capable of making that independent decision, um, and it's voluntary. 
So um, those two doctors have to confirm that. Uh, there has to be uh, oral, two oral requests, and this is the district bill. This isn't the other states because they're all slightly different. Um, there have to be two oral requests to the primary physician, the first one that the, the patient consults with, uh, separated by 15 days and a written request prior to that second oral request. So it doesn't say how long the written and the oral have to be apart from each other, so it could be on the same day that they're making the written and the second oral request, but there has to be at minimum 15 days separation between the two. So you have approximately just over two weeks, you have to wait. And then 48 hours after that written request before the prescription can actually be written. So again, 17 days maximum between your first request and when you get the lethal dose. Um, as far as patient population and statistics, I don't know the exact diagnoses. I haven't looked that up recently from the Oregon statistics. Um, but from Oregon, which has passed it, um, and had it in effect since 1997, we have the most extensive statistics. That being said, they're all self-report, so we don't really know how strong these are because the physicians who are actually writing the prescriptions aren't going to tell on themselves. So, you know, we have a little bit of skepticism, but um, it's majority aging population. It's majority 65 and up that are requesting the lethal dose. So Brittany is totally an outlier. That was a you know, rare occasion that you have someone 29 years old with a six-month diagnosis who is requesting this lethal prescription. And with that, the reason that they give predominantly for wanting the um, lethal prescription is not because they're in extreme pain, because that they have to fill this out when they're requesting in Oregon why they want the drug. And Predominantly, the majority of cases are loss of autonomy, loss of capacity to continue to do things I previously enjoyed, loss of dignity, and fear of becoming a burden. This isn't about pain. Um, so as much as Compassion Choices is going to give all these arguments and all these cases and examples of extreme pain because you know it pulls upon our empathy, um, that's not what this is about. This is more about people aren't in this condition. There aren't in these places like sisters, you know, homes where they're surrounded by a community of people. They're feeling the strain on their families. And maybe they walked that journey previously with a loved one um, and felt drained themselves. It's hard to be a caregiver when you're in these small little nuclear families nowadays. So, you know, that being said, it's more of really an existential crisis than it is a pain issue. I would just add that two more things. Uh, uh, in places like um, the Netherlands uh, and uh, Belgium that have long had uh, legislation like this, uh, there really is no such thing uh, as palliative care and hospice care anymore because doctors just don't seek it out as an option. It you know, it's completely corrodes the notion of, of caring for people at the end of life because this becomes the primary uh, means we're dealing with the elderly population, and it is the, the elderly population. So. Um, I, in dealing with the cost of health care today, there's a lot of emphasis on cost efficiency. And my concern is, is that that is going to be a factor that's going to lay the groundwork for more physicians prescribe suicide. Are you seeing that as a factor? Do you think this is going to increase you know, assisted suicide in the future? <clears throat> 
Chris mentioned the case of Barbara Wagner where there was the rejection of treatment. Since then, um, the HMOs and insurance companies in Oregon have ceased to provide letters. It's only verbal, um, whether or not they're approving treatments or not, so there's no paper trail at this point as to what's going on. Um, it's definitely, if I were in the business of insurance, it would definitely be a temptation, I can imagine. You, you would definitely scale down your expenses. Um, they assure the folks out of Oregon that that's not the case, uh, that they're committed to the full range of possibilities and treatment options. Um, I don't think we can definitively say one way or the other. There's no hard proof. So. And just last year, or uh, actually a few months ago, um, it was announced that Medicare will start paying doctors uh, for end-of-life consultation, uh, which is uh, an interesting and kind of a gray area because it, we don't know what that will entail, uh, but one can't uh, suspect at least that it certainly leaves the door open uh, for uh, one to be encouraged down this path. So. Uh, Thank you again. One specific question is, does the um, legislation in the District of Columbia make any provisions for parents making this decision for their children? And then an add-on would be that I would hope that we do pay physicians for end-of-life care and the counseling of families and that we should not reject that notion because, um, you know, time is quite valuable and um, providing compassionate care, you know, shouldn't be not reimbursed. We have to be quite careful. But curious about the provision for under 18. No, the, um, the bill in D.C. and all of them across the country have been 18 and up. It's adults only. Um, in other bills as well, there's a provision that the, the patient has to be able to self-administer. Again, that this is not euthanasia. This is not somebody else giving the deadly drug. This is actually you taking it on your own volition, your own accord. It's assisted suicide. Um, in D.C., that provision is not there, so it doesn't say anything about whether or not you have to be capable of self-administering. And this comes into play when you have cases of Parkinson's or other disabilities where the individual is not able to actually pick up the dose and drink it. Um, again, there's no protection here in the district for that. So, I'd like to respond to your second question about physicians and counseling and um, palliative care. Definitely in our experience, the quality, if we can put it that way, of a person's dying and the family's experience of it, I would say in most cases is related to having had conversations between family members um, and the person and a position and the person and knowing what that person's, if they're no longer able to speak for themselves, knowing what their desires would have been. Um, so a physician really getting to know the person and also the family being in on it. Even if a person still is capable of speaking, there can be this conspiracy of silence around them that nobody wants to bring it up. I saw it when my own father was dying that my mother would not allow myself and my siblings to really talk to him about it. Oh, he'll be scared, you know? Um, and so, unfortunately, he died kind of in this conspiracy of silence going on that none of us were admitting what was going on. And I think in a, in a society that wasn't so dominated by the culture of death, we would be all for physicians um, having these conversations and certainly for the time being covered. What frightens me is knowing that 
there is a bias against the elderly out there and against the frail, the chronically ill. And it's like, I guess, just in a nutshell, if I knew that every doctor out there was pro-life, I would be all for it. But I just worry about the agendas of those who might be doing such counseling not being um, a pro-life agenda, that it could be dangerous. So I think you're right that we have to make provision for that. And I know doctors are so rushed nowadays, and it's very unfortunate that they often don't really know their patients. Um, but So I think it's even more important for family conversations to take place. In addition, maybe prior to and in addition to whatever happens with the physician. I thank you so much for all of your good work. It's absolutely vital. <clears throat> um, one question of clarification about the DC law, I guess it's more for Krista, um, and, all, and then an existential question for all three of you. Um, I know the law in California, which was passed but not yet in effect, uh, maybe also Washington and Oregon, um, but I'm, I know California, that the two witnesses to the request, one of them can actually stand to be a, a financial beneficiary for the person from the person's death. Mm -hmm. So, like an heiress to this great, <laughs> you know, the the person who's dying is sitting on a mound of gold, and I can actually witness this and say, "Oh yes, he or she wants this." It's ludicrous. So I, I'm wondering if if that's part of the DC law as well. Absolutely. Okay. The existential question, and I'll pass the mic to someone else, is um, it seems to me that we can also winsomely question this experience of autonomy. Like what, my understanding is roughly half the people who get the prescription never use it. So they live out their days with this deadly drug in their cabinet every single day that they continue to live. Somebody else could take it. Uh, their cat could swallow it. I mean, however, but but is that really autonomous for me to wake up every day knowing, is this the day I'll kill myself? Will it be next week? How bad is bad enough to actually resort to this so-called escape hatch? It seems to me that that is so much more of a burden than a freeing thing and truly autonomous, and I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. Having sat through many hours of hearings, <laughs> both here and in uh, the district hearing last July and in Maryland two years in a row, um, the individuals who are advocating on behalf of this bill um, and have testimonies of their own health conditions and everything else, um, many of them say having it there is just that kind of reassurance that you know if things got really bad, I have a way out. Like they feel that it is some sort of um, placebo effect almost just having the pills in their possession. So that would be contrary to what people state in the hearings and out of Oregon and everything else in terms of having possession of these pills in their uh, homes. Uh, it does present many other problems. Um, they are talking about, you know, when they're proposing these bills, how many great safeguards they have to protect the patients and everything else. But the sheer fact that, one, there are no psychological evaluations required ever um, from the point of the initial request to the last request. But as soon as you have that prescription, 
all those safeguards are over. There are no safeguards. There's no oversight. There's no watching to see if the person's actually taking of their free volition. There's no opportunity to see, oh, maybe they've encountered a new onset of depression at that point. Maybe they were perfectly fine when they asked the first time, but their health status changed and they have become depressed at this point and then they take the pills because of the depression, not because of the illness, whatever. There's no safeguards once they're in their possession at all. No one's observing the death. Nobody knows what's happening. You have to take 100 pills in a certain amount of time or problems could occur. So who's actually observing and making that happen? Yeah, yeah, it's not the case actually in DC. I think I would, I look at it from kind of a different angle and I would say, okay, if these people had these pills all this time, what prevented them? So there must have been something in their lives that still made life worth living that they kept on going, even though they could have done it, you know? And so was it the quality of their relationships? Was it that their pain just didn't get so bad? But I think I would um, like to posit that if we have those quality relationships and we are surrounded and we're not made to feel like a burden, then in a way it's like that need goes away. So even though these people had the medication, um, they didn't need it. So they left it there because they must have found some support and some reason to go on. And, you know, in 1999, I'm not even sure if it's in print anymore, but the U.S. bishops wrote a pastoral letter on aging, and there's a line in it that really was life-changing for me. Um, the line is that they're, say, they're addressing themselves directly to senior citizens, and they say that, that they need to come to the acceptance that they need help from people, but after all, the real gospel value is not independence, it's interdependence, and that your moment of need might be a moment of grace for another person. And Pope John Paul II said that a very similar thing also in 1980, I believe in the same talk that I quoted that um, to the elderly, he said that don't be embarrassed when you need help. Your needing help is the occasion for younger people to outgrow their immaturity and <laughs> to learn how to give of themselves. And so, you know, I think what in talking in positives, if we could really stress that as, you know, a solution. And just one more thing that I have never forgotten. I had the occasion uh, many years ago, about 15 years ago, to interview Hel Helen Alvarez, who I'm sure you all know very well or, you know, know her name. And we asked her what she considered the most compelling argument against euthanasia. And I expect her to go into some policy thing. And she said, it's not about them, it's about us. So in other words, it's about it's not about the sick people, it's about the response of the people who surround them and what you know how are we going to surround them and support them that will um, diminish the need the, the perception of a need for assisted suicide and euthanasia. So a quick question. How about living wheels? Um, how do they come into play with all this? Well, I, I meant to say this at the very beginning and totally spaced, but um, 
I think what's important is that we point out what assisted suicide is not, too. Um, I think there's a great deal of confusion in our culture about end-of-life decisions and what they actually entail. Um, assisted suicide is the act of ending your life by purposefully utilizing a lethal overdose of drugs. But what it is not is refusing treatment that may become burdensome or refusing treatment that's futile or um, determining that you're past a point where uh, a resuscitation is going to be effective and almost dangerous and more problematic, would you choose it? So um, there are times within our Catholic uh, tradition and perspective that we have moral opportunities to make good decisions um, that would involve refusing treatment, that would not pursue further treatment. That being said, living wills can be problematic depending on what kind of a document it is. Uh, because all of our approach within Catholic doctrine is this very person-centered, um, holistic approach within healthcare. You can't make definitive decisions about particular procedures that may be years down the road when they come into play. I don't know what my health circumstances are going to be when this particular procedure might be appropriate and whether or not it is morally obligatory or not. Because we have to weigh those out in light of our, our moral teaching. Is this a burdensome treatment? Is it not? Is it futile? Is it going to help? Is it going to do what it's intended to do? Or, or is my physical condition beyond that? Um, so we've always stressed in our presentations in the diocese and everything that it's better to appoint a healthcare agent. It's better to have someone who can make those decisions for you in real time with all the information that you need to make those decisions um, versus a document that can keep you very bound from the point you sign it on. Um, so I might want a DNR right now if I were to get in a car wreck versus 50 years down the road when it might be inappropriate, you know? Um, or I might want resuscitation. I don't want to misspeak. But um, uh, so, you know, those documents can be binding and more restrictive to the physician than they're intended to be. Um, so it's much better to have someone do that in real time. And with, this is where those counseling sessions can be problematic because they have a list that they're going through most of the time. Do you want this? Do you want this? How many sessions of dialysis do you want? Do you want it for this long, this long? You don't know. You can't make that decision you know, in the abstract. You have to make it in real time. So, One last question here. I I work with the uh, sick and the homebound um, at St. Matthew's Cathedral, um, but my question comes also from my own personal experience. Um, we're talking about the flip side about people looking at this, quote, option out of the lack of understanding as to what else is available. Um, I'm also thinking of the burdens that families have when one or two particular caregivers are having to care for one person or another. Um, as much as we should perhaps look at the legislative side, which is indeed very important, um, Sister, your testimony to how the community helps those who are dying almost makes me ache for the possibility that our own elderly would be sufficiently poor to be able to come into your home. Um, often we have such a, it is, it is 
other families that don't have those those environments. Um, if we are a people of life, how do you suggest we proceed to create similar environments for our own elderly and create uh, areas of help in our parishes to give the support to the families that are going through these issues? It's pretty much a known fact in the, in the world of elder care that all other things being equal, the vast majority of older people would choose to remain in their own homes rather than be in an institutional setting. So as wonderful as our homes might be, um, praise God for that, you know, home still is where people would rather be. And so, um, you know, I, I guess this is, I'm thinking just maybe theoretically or ideally, but if more parishes had a parish nurse or um, someone similar to that or more than one, depending on the population of the parish, you know, there'd have to be funds to um, employ people like that whose specialty could be visiting the homebound and making assessments and managing, helping to manage case, you know, their cases or knowing where to refer people, maybe social workers who had that kind of information so that they knew how to refer to the resources that are out there. Because sometimes it's just a matter of ignorance. Sometimes it is a matter of availability that the services, you know, home health services are not available or people can't afford them. But, you know, I think on parish levels where funding could be made available to have, you know, serious, some staff with that kind of background to be able to refer people and help them access resources so that people could stay at home. And also, you know, um, I think in a sense, like, I think, I don't remember the statistic, but in our country, the hospital has come to be the place where the majority of people die, even though nobody wants to die in a hospital. And, you know, to kind of get back to um, convincing people that they're capable of doing many of these things, like doing a lot of the care themselves. And that's the beauty of hospice when they come into a home and they train family members to do, whether it's suctioning or just changing and positioning a person. But, you know, where there's love, um, you know, people can do tremendous things. And, you know, when you just look at, for instance, like, when a baby is born who's got serious health issues or handicaps and how those parents who had no background in medical, anything medical, learn how to do all kinds of things at home. You know, they might have help from visiting nurses and staff who come in, but they're also managing a lot of it. And, you know, I, I think average people can do an awful lot, but we kind of have a mentality here in the United States like they have to be in the hospital. Um, so maybe just putting more training out there and exposing people to it. Please join me in thanking our uh, panelists. Before we end tonight, I'm going to invite Sarah Yaklik to come up for just one brief second to explain to you all how you can make a difference in this uh, issue as you leave here tonight. Sarah. Thank you, Mitch. So the great takeaway for this evening is what is next? And how can we be the joyful messengers sharing that story of yes and, and sharing that story of hope so we can change culture and change the minds of our city council? 
Um, so I want to let you know of a coalition. It's called uh, No DC Suicide. And it's a coalition made up of about 15 organizations. Uh, the DC Catholic Conference is uh, one of those organizations, um, along with a number of disability awareness um, organizations. And the goal of that organization really is to advocate strongly before the DC Council about um, the bill. But um, uh, before we could get to that point and really advocate um, before the council, we have to, on the ground, build up a culture of life and build up a city where we say that we deserve better than assisted suicide. And so how do we start <laughs> sharing that message? Social media is just one way that seems to be very effective. Um, there was a study in the Wall Street Journal a little while ago that said all it takes is 10 tweets for a legislator to begin paying attention to an issue. So can you imagine if we all took to social media, and if we're not on social media ourselves, had a conversation with somebody who is on social media, the profound difference it could make. Um, Compassion and Choices has a lot of money and a lot of resources to be um, <laughs> saying everything that we don't believe in and, and putting this assisted suicide as the answer. And so what we would like to do is invite you to um, Learn, up, learn more about the coalition. So I have some cards that we're gonna put in the back. Um, no DC suicide. You could sign up for our email alerts um, and just get to know more information and surround yourself with the facts and important stories so you could be those joyful witnesses. And to do that on social media, we're inviting, we're using two specific campaigns. The first one is always dignified. And that really is for us as Catholics to get out and to share our story to say that you know we believe that life is always dignified, but to share the reason why, and to really make that difference. Um, and so we encourage you to, if you see stuff on social media that you want to share, use the hashtag. Um, we'll also be using wrong for DC, hashtag wrong for DC. Slight, mostly because this is not just a Catholic issue and we have to engage people if we're going to win. So we're trying to use um, two different campaigns to speak the same beautiful truth. So um, we encourage you, pick up the car on the way out, sign up, and then take it to social media. And please join us out in the bookstore for a reception. We're continuing the conversation there. Thank you. Can I just make one final pitch before we go? Um, we're the sisters that nobody heard, have, has ever heard of who have the Supreme Court case coming <laughs> up for argument on March 23rd. So I just ask you the support of your prayers for the success of our case against the HHS mandate. And we are having a holy hour um, on March 19th at Feast of St. Joseph at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at our house in Northeast DC. So we're pretty much right across the street from the Hartfee Theater of Catholic U and the public is invited. It's also going to be live streamed by Shalom World. Um, and so, you know, that's one way of joining us in prayer. And also, women speak for themselves. Helen Alvarez's group is organizing the rally outside the Supreme Court the morning of the argument. So people are um, welcome to join outside. Uh, we're going to be giving at home cookies. Um, <laughs> so we want to have as many people as possible, you know, in support of our cause outside the Supreme Court that day. But really, we just need your prayers anywhere you can and in any way you can offer them um, for, the, for our case. Thank you.